Hi and welcome to the podcast. I'm Sonia Thomas. I'm Sarah Jordan. And I'm Gavin Cooper. Hi and welcome to episode two. Following on from episode one where we spoke to Emma Morris about CAR T-cells, we thought it would be a good idea to get Lee Wood, one of our clinical trials practitioners, in to talk about why UCLH is doing so many CAR T-cell infusions, such as last year when we gave more CAR T-cells than the rest of Europe combined, the role of randomized control trials on the wards, uh, placebos, what phase one, two, and three trials are all about. We hear from Lee about the positive impacts CAR T-cell therapy have had on patients, and he gives us some insight into the follow-up of patients two years post-CAR T-cells who are now doing really well. Lee's joining us to talk a little bit about CAR T-cells and the role of clinical trials at UCLH, which we're kind of seeing ever more at the moment on the wards. And I think in the past we've seen clinical trials like, I guess like TREAT, looking at tranexamic acid. We've obviously seen like AML-19, AML-18. Is there, is there anything different about the kind of trials we're running at the moment with CAR T-cells? Yeah, there is. I mean, the first thing I'd say about CAR T-cells as a trial is, compared to, say, the AMLs, um, these patients are here specifically for the trial. So in a lot of clinical settings, the trial it's kind of added on to what's happening already. So yeah. you add a medication, you add a uh, radiotherapy, you, add, you tweak the regimen um, with CAR-T. They're referred here or they're seen here and their entire inpatient stay, start to finish, is specifically CAR-T. Mm-hmm. Um, so it's a slightly new thing in, in that regard because it's, it's all trial from, from, the, from, the, from, the, from the emission to the, to the discharge and onwards, it's entire trial. So every aspect of it is recorded as a, as a trial. So. Um, we act in a way like key workers from the first instance mm-hmm. all the way through. That's uh, we as in clinical trial practitioners or research nurses working on the, on the trials team. And is that is that difficult at times to kind of take on that key worker role from scratch, really? It is. It's certainly a learning curve. Um, like I started as a data manager, so I started working just putting data from, uh, from notes onto databases. Uh, and now I'm a CTP. So you certainly learn quickly. Um, you learn a lot from your colleagues uh, as research nurses who work side by side, and obviously from the nurses and doctors we work with across the hospital. But it's um, it's also like a privilege because you get to work with these patients all the way through, and you get to kind of know them really well, and you know, through good and the bad, which is kind of, yeah, it's a, it's a privilege to work on. What is uh, the clinical trials practitioners? What what is your role, and how is that different from like a, a research nurse? I work for the Cancer Clinical Trials Unit, which is split between oncology and hematology, about 60-40 on to heme. Uh, we work on cancer trials throughout UCH. That's different to the CRF, which is the, the clinical research facility, because they have their own building facilities, whereas we just work with the hospital. So okay. there's unique yeah, challenges, okay. yeah. So yeah, they have their own beds, their own machines, their own you know, waiting room, it's all very nice. Whereas we work sort of with, with the hospital and all its parts. Yeah, exactly. Which is has its own challenges and its own you know um, great benefits because we work with you guys, nurses and doctors, uh, but everything we do is kind of on top of what you're already doing. You, you're helping us out above and beyond your normal jobs. Yeah. But at the same time, a lot of facilities are there waiting for us. And you couldn't really run a CAR T-cell trial as a day case in the CRF. Exactly, yeah. Yep. So, you know, we particularly latch on to the BMT service, for example, from start mm-hmm. to finish, because it's a real natural way to work through it. But, yeah, that's how, yeah, so CCTU works alongside the hospital, and we're a big team, 100 people, give or take, 
running about 200 trials. Um, wow. Now those trials are from phases one to three, typically, mostly three. Just to explain that very briefly, uh, phase one tends to be first in human, so the first time this medication has been given to a human being, and it's chiefly testing safety. So is the medication safe to give to people? It would have been in a preclinical phase before that, where it was given to, say, rodents, or just used in the lab, you know, like a petri dish, whatever, and that would have been just to work out if it, in theory, would work. But after the preclinical stage, it comes to the clinic, and clinical trials, and that's where, for the first time, we give it to a human being. So the main question is, is this safe to do so? So we often find uh, these trials form um, escalation studies, in which case you basically give typically three patients a certain dose of the medication. You do it very slowly. So you, for example, in CAR-T, you give one patient a dose. You wait a month, 28 days. Then if they're well, there's been no side effects specifically related to the CAR-T, you can then give the second patient dose and again for the third patient oh, okay. so that's making sure it's safe and to avoid things that happened at North Oak Park where people got it all at the same time and there was massive issues we do it very slowly very steadily and very carefully that was like a clinical trial where was it like a dozen people all ended up in ITU exactly they got yeah. it very close together so when okay. so not only not only uh, did have things happen simultaneously hmm. and therefore they didn't have the facilities to cope with it from a so intensive care perspective oh, okay. a yeah. medication wow. perspective yeah. yeah in addition to that the fact is if if you'd waited 28 days you'd know that first after the first person it wasn't safe to give to the second person yeah, yeah. so yeah from that and various other experiences we do this very slowly that month is called a dlt or dose limiting toxicity phase in which we look for things which the things that are caused by the therapy if they have a non-therapy related issue during that time, we'll record it and let everyone know, but we're mainly concerned about things causally related to the therapy we're giving. Let's say patient one and then two and then three were perfectly fine, had no side effects that were severe. Then of course we also want to get a efficacious medication. So if there's been no side effects, but nor has there been a res an amazing response, uh, we will increase the dose to the next level. However, if let's say the first three patients all got a complete response, works and it's safe, we can stop here, Brilliant, end of trial. But let's say that didn't happen, but everyone's safe, we go up to the next level, the next level, the next level, and so on, until we kind of reach a point where it's you know, a balance between being effective, but also being safe. So you might reach a point where it, at a ceiling, at which point the dose is starting to become, have bad side effects, so you go to the do dose below. So too toxic, basically. Exactly, versus what you're getting from it. So that's where most sort of phase one trials begin, is getting a, a, a safe dose. And with CAR T cells, what would be? Are there any of the trials we've heard of that would be considered phase one? Most of the trials we run are phase one, so only one out of the nine we run is phase two. Okay. So the vast majority are phase one at the moment. Right. Um, so and um, so we're, most of them we're establishing the best dose. Um, then on phase two, uh, which happens once you've treated uh, maybe nine to twelve to twenty-four people on phase one, depending on how quick or slow it's gone. Uh, phase two is rechecking safety, but then looking at efficacy as well as, as the main kind of um, objective. So at this point, you would have a dose you've established from phase one that you know is kind of safe and hopefully efficacious. But from phase one, you'll only have fairly small numbers that won't be terribly informative statistically and you know, from a clinical perspective. So now you've got a dose, 
that you give to lots more people, say, you know, between 20 and 100 people, and find out, okay, now you've given to lots of people, is it going to work? Is there strong data to indicate this might be a future therapy? So that's phase two. At phase three, you've gone, right, it's safe. Yep, it's effective. And then the third question is, is it better than the best thing we currently give? Because being safe and good isn't isn't worth anything. It's not better than treatment that we already give people. Precisely. A tablet that or a drink that makes you hydrated is great and it's probably safe, but it's not better than water. So (laughs) why would you sell it if it's not better than a thing that you can do for cheaper already? So you want to demonstrate at that point. So normally at phase three, this is quite general, so it varies between trials and between countries and between medications, but normally at phase three you introduce a control arm. Which will either be what normally is the best available therapy. It's rarely placebo, because placebos aren't the best available therapy, they're nothing at all. So you only do placebo control if there is no other therapy. So if it's completely brand new therapy and there's no alternative, mm-hmm. you control it with the placebo, so you've got a comparator. But otherwise, you'd have wherever you, you, you currently have best, the NHS, for example. And how do you decide who gets the trial medication and who gets the control arm of that? It's normally randomised. So it's a randomization which is done by a computer, and that makes it fair. It makes it fair because it avoids sort of cherry picking, because there's the there's always biases, either implicit conscious ones or subconscious ones. And people might be saying, you go in this arm, you go in this arm, and bias in the data. If it's random, you, you control for those kind of random factors that may, that may bias the trial. So most of them are, are random. So you'd, you get a patient in, make sure they're eligible for the trial, you go onto the computer system, enter the details, and then the computer go, bosh, they're getting this one versus that one. Okay. Um, sometimes you make it reduce bias even further by making it a blind trial, in which case no one knows what they're on. It's only possible, though, when the medications look exactly the same. So if it's a pill, for example, you can give someone a blue pill and a blue pill, and no one knows which one is the right one. You can't do it for CAR-T, because <laughs> for obvious reasons. Um, it's a big infusion. Um, but you can certainly randomise the criteria and you can compare. What would be the choice? There, are there certain factors that make you choose between a blind and a randomised? What, what would make that decision? So the gold standard for a phase 3 trial would be like a double blind randomised trial. Double blind means neither the doctor nor the patient knows what they want. So we're going to do Zuma 7, aren't we, where we're kind of comparing yeah. CAR T-cells for lymphoma patients versus autologous transplants. Yeah. So if you could completely hide which one was which throughout the whole thing, you could technically do it. Yeah, which would be ideal, and it's the most kind of it's the gold standard way of getting good data because there's absolutely no bias whatsoever because no one knows what's happening. But it's impractical in CAR T setting because giving RGDP is very different to giving one dose of CAR T-cells. And also, you're looking at completely different toxicities, yeah. and it would be unsafe to... Supportive care and everything. Mm. Precisely, yeah, yeah, exactly. Zuma 7 has two to three cycles of RGDP, followed by an autologous transplant, which looks completely different to an infusion of cells on a one-day thing. So it's not possible. So we'll never be able to do that for CAR-T, but where, you know, where it's feasible, you would have a blinded randomization. Would there be many biases in this sort of setting by not having it blinded? Um, not necessarily. Because we're, you know, as you know, the clinicians, we're not necessarily going to do anything different, are we? We're not going to sort of go, oh, they're only having the autologous transplants, so we'll not give them good care, or, no, you know. precisely. Yeah. In fact, I mean, that's an example of why working, as we do, with the hospital is great, because most of the people who work with the patients on our trials are getting standard of care. And what you do is your day-to-day job, treating patients, 
And what the Charles team do is just add bits on or tweak things or say, do this extra bit. But generally speaking, for you, it's not important in a trial because they're the patients and therefore they get the best care possible. We don't change no the way what. we work. Precisely. Yeah. Okay. You change practice in a small way because it's trial specific. But most people, <coughs> it's just you just do your job and you get patients the best possible treatment. And that doesn't change anything. So you're right. From that perspective, you kind of, in a way, you're, you're shielded from bias because it's not patient's safety first and patient's best care first. How have we ended up in this situation where we kind of had CAR T cells first on the ward maybe three years ago, two yeah. years ago, and now we've got you know potentially 60-odd patients this year? Is, it, it's, this is, is this common in other UK hospitals? No, it's been, it's been a fast growth period. So, yeah, we've had experience of cellular therapies for several years at UCLH, but our first CAR T started in 2016. That was a trial called Cobalt for large B-cell lymphoma. It was a kind of homegrown trial from UCL from our transplant team. So Professor Carl Peggs is the principal investigator, i.e. the person who basically leads the trial. So very much it's a homegrown UCL, UCLH trial. So yeah, we, we opened that. And then we then opened a second and a third. And then all those three were academic. By, by academic, I mean they're trials which are basically funded by charities and or universities and tend to be fairly small scale. And academic is counterpointed to... Um, commercial, which is a trial sponsored by a, a company, oh, a right. large organisation. Once we had sort of two to three trials, and we had, by definition, some of the best experience in the country treating patients with CAR-T. We then attracted other companies and organisations to work with us because we therefore had the experience, which we built on and built on and built on hmm. till now. Presumably with the commercial trials, there's is that helping the trust financially to sort of, you know, do this research in-house or is it a sort of, there's no net benefit apart from the benefit it brings patients and in increasing expertise? Yeah, good question. So CCTU is effectively, we think, kind of pays for itself. Okay. Um, we do a mix of academic work and we do a mix of commercial work. So the academic work doesn't tend to pay a great deal, whereas the commercial work at the very least should pay for itself. Right. So every member of the of the team will be paid by, say, the network, or make sure the network and commercial trials. We're all on fixed term contracts, which means if research ended next year, no one will have a job anymore. It hasn't happened yet, but it technically could. Yeah. <laughs> but hopefully it means we're kind of self-justifying. So we're not necessarily a burden to, the, to UCLH or the trust. Yeah, everything that happens on a commercial trial, every moment the patient's in, every blood test, every scan, is costed for and charged for. For CAR-T, the cost of the entire inpatient stay would be effectively free for the trust. So we get to treat our patients or patients referred to us with no cost burden to, to UCLH. Yeah. This is kind of a silly question, but I've always wondered why Why in the US have they had CAR T cells for so long? And then now it's only just in the last few years that we're kind of finally you know, giving them to more and more patients here. I think the research began there. And then I think that's where the, the first kind of research started with CAR T. I think we had the capacity and capability later. Okay. But also there's been a lot of money and interest. After the, the first sort of moments, it was, was realised that this would be an effective treatment for people. A lot of money went into it. So now we're at the point where with products on the NHS and also new trials, most of them are by the big American companies, Novartis, Kygiliad, Celgene. So these are the guys who have been working on it for, for you know, half a decade or more. And what successes have we had so far with the patients that we've treated? Good question. So it's, it's a complicated question. Because Would it be fair to say that maybe the experience on the wards is yeah. not every patient, I mean, we don't want to go into details, but yeah, not every patient does well who we've treated here? No, certainly. The first thing to say is that with a phase one trial, so as I said, we're looking at safety, right? 
Now, you don't test a first in human medication on somebody who has a better alternative. So we tend to treat on these trials patients who are relapsed and refractory to their treatment and therefore may have few other options. You wouldn't test a first in human drug, CAR-T, cytotherapy, on someone who has RDDP, which we know is proven efficacy, or a transplant proven efficacy, proven numbers. Those trials or those therapies are licensed, therefore they've been declared safe and they're, they're okay by NICE and the FDA, etc. And they would have given to be so many people that you can sit down and quantify statistics and percentages and know this is good for you. We know this is the best thing for you. It's inappropriate to offer a first in human medication, which has got no proven efficacy and no proven safety, to someone who has better known options. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So as long window way of saying that we give this to patients who are probably have a higher mortality risk yeah. than other ones who failed other medications. You're already looking at a cohort of patients who don't have very good outcomes or don't, don't have any very good prospective outcomes. It's a difficult group to work with by definition. And for example, the CARD trial or the ORCAR trial treats patients who have relapsed post-transplant in leukemia. Mm-hmm. So as a group, you know, they haven't got great long-term survival rates at that point, uh, wherever we give them. In the context of the patients we're dealing with, it, yeah, it's difficult. Furthermore, of course, we, we can treat both in ambulatory care or in the ward. And the patients who fly through treatment and go home after 10 days post-CAR-T, you will never see on the wards because they're at home in a complete response. Right, right? I see. What you see on the ward is patients who have a difficult time or who progress through treatment, who have bad side effects or go to ICU. So I think if you're a nurse or a doctor in the ward, you'll see a slightly skewed vision because you see the people who aren't doing well, by definition. Whereas Ambicare probably have a slightly more sort of rose-tinted view yeah. of, of CAR-T because those guys just stay there, stay in the hotel, then go home, and everything's fine. I think that's, that's pretty much the same with the majority of our patients. They travel here from you know, other centres because yeah. we can treat them. And I think a lot of nurses that I've only worked inpatient do feel like it's quite negative. Yeah, I think the patients who are receiving the, the CAR T cells are also quite optimistic about them. You know, they're quite happy that they're, you know, they're pleased they're on the trial. They've been looking forward to it. So I think that also makes it difficult. They're not coming in thinking, oh, well, this is doom and gloom. This is hopefully a cure. But by the same token, they're also got very difficult to treat disease. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I think it's really important that you say that there's patients that are in ambulatory care and are doing well and going home. So this is a treatment that is working in other patients. We just might not get to see that. And I think that's really important yeah, to, to know about as well. Yeah. Like I said, there definitely are great, great outcomes. We're doing this because there's good evidence from the States and anecdotally here there's good evidence. And the thing is, it's hard to say few percentages and figures because there was at most 10 patients on every trial. So each number is too small to say, yeah, this is working. But I can talk about patients who've relapsed post-transplant who are now 18 months after CAR-T, they complete oh. response. So I know there's lots of different trials. Um, is there any way you could direct one of your patient nurses to go and find out a little bit more about a specific trial? Sure. I mean, well, they can always come to um, see me and my team and talk about any of the trials. We also have a, an MDT, second or fourth Wednesday of the month, where we basically list every patient we've ever treated uh, who's still alive and see how they're doing which oh, is quite oh, it's quite a hopeful list because yeah. a lot of them are yeah months because yeah, again these trials opened between two and three years ago some of the patients are approaching second year after CAR-T home and well mm-hmm. so we never see them anymore because very infrequently but it's nice to go through everybody oh yeah they're fine they're fine they're fine they're fine when you see it cumulatively 
Um, it looks looks great. So that would be a nice place to sit down and see all the people. They may recognise from the ward, they may recognise from family care and see that they're doing really well. And so when is that MDT? Second so. and fourth Wednesday of the month. 4.30 in the camp centre, room 4.22. Where are we? Oh, wow. It's a plug for that. Uh, <laughs> I'm missing it right now, in fact. Yeah. <laughs> That's a really good ending, but I think just going back, can I ask one question? Yeah. Um, what, so... Of all the CAR T cell uh, treatments being offered, they all—is it right that they all target B cells? Like even the the lung, non-small cells, uh, CA, and myeloma. Is that, I, I heard someone say that they're actually all—they all actually target B cells. Is that right? I need to actually edit this one. I'm not sure. Okay. So so yeah. so what I would say so. The, so very briefly, just to like very briefly summarize how CAR T therapy works is. The challenge with treating these patients from a cellular perspective is you need to find a target that's expressed on the cancer, but ideally nowhere else. And one of the issues with treating, using CAR-T therapy to treat solid tumours is bowel cancer, the cancer looks like the bowel. So if you have something targeted to kill that, you'll also attack the bowel, which is not ideal. Whereas it was found that in liquid tumours, immunological cancers, leukemia lymphoma, CD19 was often expressed by tumour cells, but only otherwise expressed by B cells. You could modify the T cell to make it a CAR T cell, and that CAR T cell is looking for CD19. It does so, and it kills the cancer, we hope. Then afterwards, it goes to a quiescent stage in the body and sits around giving you sort of long-term uh, care and preventing relapse. However, it can also find CD19 on the surface of B cells and therefore kill them. But you can live with that B cells, but you can't necessarily live very long with cancer. So with IVIG as support, we can can mitigate the risks for from an infectious disease perspective by giving the therapy. Now we have other targets. So for myeloma, we can target BCMA and or TACI, which is expressed on the surface of plasma cells. We have a new trial open called Auto4, which is for which is the first only CAR T trial in the world for T cell lymphoma, which is a poor prognosis, and that's quite fascinating. So that targets something called TRBC1, uh, and TRBC1 is basically half of your immune system. So half of your immune system will express TRBC1, half will express TRBC2. Your immunity for things is split across the two, two parts. So there's nothing, your immunity to chickenpox won't be just TRBC1, it'll be split across the two, right? However, because cancer is monoclonal, your T-cell lymphoma will either be entirely TRBC1 or entirely TRBC2. So the theory behind this CAR-T is if you target one of them, or one of them will be the cancer, if you kill all that, you'll leave half of your immune system, which luckily carries all of your inherited, or not inherited, but all of your previous immunities. Oh, mm. uh, right, okay. And just slices out the, the bad stuff, which is, that's the idea at least. We've only treated one patient so far, so it's very early days. It's an example of different targets to seed 19. Now, healthy cells can still be killed in the bone marrow, but it shouldn't target B cells because... They don't expect, they're not targeting C19 in that case. Right. We all kind of nodded like we understood it. Yeah. Like, yeah. It's, it's <laughs> one or two. Oh, yeah, 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 one or two. Yeah, I know. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. I think what you were trying to say, Gab, as well, is that um, can we not create carb T cells to kill off Anything. different cancers? Yeah. Like, yeah. you know, is that is that the future or Bacteria. Or what? Yeah. yeah. Well, yeah, I think the question is if you can find target which is ideally unique just to the malignancy yeah. but no, and nothing else then in theory yes but the problem is finding that 
we have a couple of trials which target CD19 and CD22. 22, yeah. The rationale for that is one of the most common things that happens with a relapse post-CAR T is CD19 negative relapse. The tumour is able to downregulate CD19 because it's being killed with CD19. And therefore, once the relapse happens, it's negative, in which case the CAR T is completely avoid in terms of its efficacy. CD22 isn't expressed as commonly in leukemia or lymphoma as CD19 is, but if we target two things simultaneously, we might be able to improve or decrease the, the rates of relapse uh, mm -hmm. for those patients. Be patient with us when we're hassling you. It's, gen <laughs> it's, genuinely, it's genuinely, like, like I say, because you know, CAR-T is unusual in that it's wholly research. It's, it's not, they're not under BM, well, they're under BMT, but they're not, they're not under having a transplant plus a trial and they're not having you know this plus that they are every, every moment they're here is, is, is research so whenever we ask for bloods or ECGs or actual observations is specifically because the trial requires it and especially because it's phase one uh, safety is, is so paramount there's a huge amount of data collection that has to happen particularly in that first 28 days so it isn't arbitrary and it isn't laziness it's genuinely because we have to we have to ask for it um, so yeah but thank you for your help because we couldn't do it without like constant assistance from uh, the ward nurses and everyone else. You're welcome. <laughs> 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 <laughs>